So tell me, Tony Spielberg, how did you get your break? <laughs> We've got Mark in today, who I'm sure will be an ongoing guest for us, uh, runner of the Writing Salon of the Hospital Club, um, a writer himself, and also a dear friend of ours. We brought him in especially today, because we'll be chatting with Tony, um, and his book, Killer Intent, uh, which I'm slightly related to as well, because I did a, some filming, uh, a short film about the book itself, and that's how I worked Tony into coming into this room today, so we're very grateful to have him here. You've ruined it for me, because I can't see anyone but you now, as Mike, Michael Devlin. <laughs> <laughs> It's on audio now, right? So it's bright, the bribery is already An action pack film, Will diving across the screen. There's some great moments. It's all used for my dating profiles. Uh, <laughs> um, so actually, it's probably best that, Mark, you introduce yourself first, because it's the first time you've been on here. Thank you. Yes, it's great to be here. My name is Mark Haywood, as Will says. I'm a novelist and a screenwriter, and I run the writing salon here um, at the club. And the aim of that is really to try and get every possible learning opportunity for writers who are looking to improve their craft from the most unlikely of places. So today I'm kind of really interested in, in hearing about you know, Tony's journey as a, as a writer. Um, uh, we have one thing um, in common, which was that um, we both came at this from radically different backgrounds. So I want to talk to you a little bit about that you know, uh, a bit later on, specifically the reaction that people had, because People like to put you in boxes, don't they? Yeah, so I'm kind of really keen to look, um, you know, uh, uh, and, and learn from that. But really, I'm just kind of here shamelessly and selfishly to try and steal as many learning opportunities for writers as possible, including myself. And if they're really good, I won't share them. <laughs> Recorded, Mark. It's, okay. it's on record. It's not get away from it. It's, on it's all in the edit, don't worry. We'll get rid of it. <laughs> And uh, Tony, if you don't mind, just giving just a little bit about, I guess, uh, your background, where you're from, and sure. you don't have to go into too much detail about the book yet, but just a little bit. Um, my name is Tony Kent, uh, which is a writing name, I have to admit. Um, I'm the author of a book that has come out in January called Killer Intent, which is the first of the series. Uh, second book comes out in, well, next February. I'm currently writing the third, uh, not as we speak, because I'm sitting here, but basically as we speak. Um, I have come to writing from a previous career. I was a barrister. I still am a barrister, criminal barrister, um, which I've been doing for about 17 years now, I believe. And um, hopefully, writing will take over as we move forward. But at the moment, I'm trying to do both, and I'm getting very little sleep. And so there's a uh, first question really makes sense to talk about this work-life balance. You, you're a family man. Yes, <laughs> and brand new family as well. I mean, I've been married for five years, but we've just had our first child, which I thought was very good timing. Yeah. Congratulations. While stepping across to do a whole new career that is basically now two full-time jobs. I mean, why uh, wouldn't you change <laughs> every aspect of your life all at the same time? We did, I mean, and, and we moved to an entirely new part of the country. We lived in Chelsea, I'm now we're living in the country. I love it. I saw a very cute picture on Twitter. Uh, I'm assuming that's my, my child and not my wife. <laughs> <laughs> she is also very, very cute. I wouldn't assume that. <laughs> so, Tony, the book Killer Intent itself... Um, I don't want to say it's completely drawing from experience because it is obviously heightened, but there is certainly a character in the Michael Devlin who is a, a criminal barrister himself. Yes, yes, yeah. Uh, Michael Devlin is basically where the book started. Uh, the series is based on Michael Devlin and also Joe Dempsey, who is a military intelligence officer. And moving forward, the books will be about them either individually or together, depending on the plot. Uh, but the actual book itself, everything really comes from Michael Devlin. Uh, and the reason for that is I, I, I've always wanted, well, to say I've always wanted to write is not true. Since I was about 18, um, I wanted to write because when I was 18, I read a book called The Winner by David Baldacci. And up to that point, I had read nothing but the classics because I was at school. And I can appreciate the classics. I can understand why they're classics. I'm not going to pretend that I'm going to be particularly entertained by them. Um, so I didn't realise you could actually have an entertaining book. And then somebody gave me The Winner. I read the winner and I thought this is absolutely amazing this is like someone's writing a film in my head and from that moment I wanted to write films in people's heads I wanted to write books that you'd read on the beach that you would love uh, so I was looking for ideas uh, that I would be, that I'd be able to write and uh, when I was about 21 I was just about to finish university I was back home very temporarily before going off to bar school and I was in a bar uh, in a pub near where I grew up and I met some people from school, just happened to be in there, I asked what am I doing now and I mentioned well I'm about to go to bar school. The first reaction from one of them, um, and this is actually true, was I didn't realise you had to go to school to be a barman. Um, <laughs> <laughs> explain, that may give you, you some... You actually do as well. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. 
it may give you some indication that I don't come from the normal barrister's background. <laughs> Having explained to them uh, that, no, no, um, fair enough, I'm sure you, know, you have to do, go and study to do those things too, but I'm off to study to be a barrister. They made a comment, and the comment is based, I'll come into this later, but I have an older brother who has been in a lot of trouble throughout his life. I have a very large family who have not been in trouble. People only ever remember the black sheep. And so this chap said to me, you're going to be a barrister, but you come from a family of villains. And he's obviously completely wrong. My brother's a petty criminal, or was a petty criminal. Um, completely wrong. Uh, however, my initial urge to punch him in the mouth for being so rude about my family was completely overcome by uh, a reaction of, that's a really good idea for a story. And that's where Michael Devlin comes from. Um, so I went home, I wrote the first three chapters. I then went to bar school and I didn't touch the book again for 12 years. But initially, the whole thing comes down to a comment of a barrister from a family of villains. So the seed of that idea has been with you for idea. a long time. Uh, for a very, very long time. I then had to make it work into a story, of course. <laughs> um, but that's where the whole thing comes from. And uh, so Michael Devlin is basically the, the seed uh, from which the, the, the rest of the universe is built. How long... Um did it take you to write? Because I'm actually amazed you're already doing your third book in terms of writing, but that may just seem very quick to me. I don't know how long, how long has it taken you to get these books out? Well, to get, the, the first book was uh, was a long process. I was basically learning to write. Um, I, I mean, it's, it, I had no idea what I was doing. I'd read a lot of books. I'd never been to a class. I'd never read a writing how to write book. I just read a lot of books in the genre. Uh, so I wrote the first draft. I gave it to some people who were close to me. My mum read it, my brother read it, they loved it. It didn't occur to me that there might be a little bit of, oh, this is amazing for you, as opposed to this is a really good book. And so um, I, I, I distributed it a bit more and got a bit more feedback. And I went for a few drafts. And ultimately I gave it to a friend of mine uh, who worked at Random House, or previously worked at Random House, uh, who is a literary snob. I mean, he hates that genre. He's very into very, very highbrow literature. Uh, but because he was a good friend, he was willing to help me with the write, with, with the editing process, the writing process. And I learned everything from him, really. He went through, he just took out every eighth word. He made it about 100 pages shorter without losing a single scene. Um, and he was just, he, he picked up every tick that I had, uh, that I had then, I'm sure I've got more now, but every tick that I had then, before I replaced them with extra ones, he picked them up on them. And, and it was only after he'd gone through it that I really had, had a writing style. Before that, it was just a lot of information on a page, probably written far too much like a lawyer. Uh, so it took a long time because I kept rewriting, rewriting, rewriting. It was only after him that I decided to actually try and do something with it. So for about two years, I would occasionally go along to a book fair and I would send it out. I probably sent out about only about 10. Um, I mean, it's not one of these stories where there's loads of rejections. I didn't have time to really chase this. I was, I was running my career at the time. And so I got to the point where... I kind of gave up, um, but only after two years. And the reason I gave up was I was in the Old Bailey and I was cross-examining probably London's biggest gangster. And the next day, I was at a book fair being very grateful that some 21-year-old was willing to talk to me and give me the time of day. And I walked out of there thinking, yeah, I just can't do this anymore. I can't, the, the ego that my day job takes is not, is not dealing with this well. And so I stopped. And then I happened to go to an event um, at, at the uh, Rolls-Royce, a Rolls-Royce event. I was invited by my father-in-law. And while I was there, I met a guy who owns a publishing company. And we got chatting, we got on. I sent him a copy of the book on PDF because he was getting a train to Scotland that day. And he phoned me from Scotland and said, yeah, I would like to publish this. Let's have a sit down and we'll look at the contracts. So that's how that happened for me. I mean, it's a very unusual way for it to happen. Um, but ultimately, getting the book from the initial idea to actually doing something with it is literally over a decade in my case. Uh, getting the book from when it was ready to go out to being published, uh, two years or thereabouts. But the thing is, once you've got your contract, well, then you're on the uh, conveyor belt. So I'm now in the position where I've got to write a book a year. Um, and it takes, it takes me about, I'd say, two and a half to three months uh, to write the book. There will then be an editing process back and forth. Um, my part of that edi editing process is probably another month, month and a half. Uh, and that really is the book. But what I do find interesting is that while you're doing that, you're promoting the one before it. So you're yes. jumping back and forth between, right, I'm, I'm in this world when I'm on the radio or on the TV, and then I'm in this world, world when I'm back in front of my screen. Yeah. Uh, so luckily for me, it's the same characters. <laughs> yes.
because yes, it, it's tricky when you have to remember when the people yeah. are alive or dead. Exactly, yeah. it really does. <laughs> In my books, they're generally dead. Yeah, <laughs> it's a safe bet. Actually, that's sorry. That, that's really that is very reminiscent of everything that you've that you've just said. Um, I, um, I I've shared this with a, with a group of people before, but um, when the manuscript first came back um, from the agent, slightly different story in that. It was originally a short story that was nominated for a Crime Writers Association Award, and, and that got lots of interest because it got nominated yeah. and worked with an agent and an editor to turn it into a novel. And the original 90-odd thousand page word manuscript... It's a long book. It's too long. It was, that was the problem. That's the first it criticism there, isn't it? It's too long. It's too long. When the 90,000 words came back, there was not a single page that didn't have red pen yeah. all over it. And in a... You know, 380 page novel that was one single paragraph that had been circled in red where the agent had written love it <laughs> pretty much every single other word and, and and like everything that you just said about you know you learn to write um side by side with an editor and, and the editor and the, the agent basically just broke down every bit of ego every bit of yeah. everything to the extent that there's literally nothing left and then they hit you with it and we want to change the title as well so, <laughs> well i've given everything else up so you know so i might as well might as well the second book however was much quicker you know because you've, exactly you've, yeah you've gone through that process we've yeah. learned haven't you? you've you've learned, learned yeah and i referred earlier to the extra ticks that you pick up you pick up more ticks yeah and god knows where they come from uh, but if you have some consistency in your editor, then they will be able to pick those up for you again. Mm. It's very important to have consistency with an editor, I find, uh, because you just have a relationship and a trust with them. Um, I mean, the, the, the friend of mine who had, who helped me with the first book is now editing the third. Well, he will be editing the third, mm-hmm. having yeah. finished having finished editing the second. And the when someone like that and someone, as you say, you're the agent, when they do the second one and they don't change as much, it's one of the best feelings in the it world. Is. Because you really feel that's just, and, and they say this is so much better. Um, and whether they mean that about the finished product, but certainly the first draft they're getting, this yeah. is so much, it really does feel special mm. because, they, because they've ripped into you so much in relation to the first one. Mm. And it's that, and for them, it's as much a can I continue to work with this person? Yeah. You know, because some of the best scripts, not just to deviate from novels for a second, some of the best scripts I've ever read will never get made yeah. because the writer is so precious about their art. Yeah. And you think, well, it is, yes, it is art, but it's also a business and a big business. Mm. Yeah. So if you are precious, it's going to be tough for you. Especially that side. I mean, that, that even way more so than books. Yeah. It, it applies, it certainly applies to books, but way more so with scripts because as a writer of a script, unless you want to direct it, you're, you're giving it away. Mm. Yeah, you're not just, you, you're, you are giving away something to become someone else's vision. And I guess the same with, with adaptions of books. Yes, absolutely. I'm interested in what you said about the, the 21-year-old that you met. That must have been a, that must have been a seminal moment in your... It really, in your I mean, I've, I've, I've mentioned it in quite a lot of interviews. If that guy ever listens to any of my interviews, he must <laughs> reckon, he's going to be coming for some sort of percentage. There's a bunch, <laughs> bunch of people at the festival going, is he talking about me? <laughs> I, think, I, I, I do actually think that that's, that kind of steps on a, an issue across the field generally. Like you could be an actor who's been going at it for years in their 50s and then sort of sitting in a workshop for some 25-year-olds who had a very successful career since he was a kid, learning from them. And it's, it can be sometimes difficult to go like, well, I've worked hard. It's, it's very interesting, though, isn't it? I mean, because it depends on what, what aspect of the business you're in. My, the, I, I, the reason I struggled with it, if, I was, if it was a writer I was talking to who'd had some success, that, I mean, absolutely fine. But it was they, these people were the gatekeepers. Right. You know, they were the, in order to get anyone who is who can make a decision to read it, you have to impress these people so they allow them to read it because there are just too many books. You know, the simple fact is there are two, every single publishing house, every single agency, everyone who's in the industry, every writer now. I, I now know we get given books so that we can read and write blurbs on. Uh, there's just too many books. There aren't enough hours in the day to read them, and so you've got to somehow get in there. And it was just it was. It was the experience of talking to somebody who'd literally probably left university six months ago, had not done anything in their life but had got this job, uh, and 
therefore they'd become the gatekeeper. And you, I was just so grateful they would speak to me. You're churning out one a year now, do you say? Uh, well, churn, the idea I have... Churning about. <laughs> yeah, it, sounds, it sounds amazing to me that, to get so much content out and, you know, going from that... Well, if, if, I'm, if I'm... I mean, I, 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 the one thing I have that I think may be an advantage above others is, is I just have, have endless ideas okay. and I just note them down. And I, I actually know what the first... I could write any one of the first eight books in the series now. I know exactly what happens in all of them. Well, I don't know exactly what happened, but I know the important parts of all of them. I mean, I, I'm not a plotter in the sense that I have... I, before I write, I don't know what happens in Chapter 1 through to Chapter 70. Um, I know what the big action scenes are, and I know what the general plot is. And quite often what I finish up with bears very little relation to what I thought was the general plot in the action scenes. Uh, but I could sit down for any of the first ten, in fact, and actually write them. And get started with writing them. So that's the advantage I've got, yeah. is that I, and I've, I've got a vague idea for the first 18, uh, but I know specifically in my head how the first 10 go. I know when I'll write which one, um, I know where they're set, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and it's just, I just keep having, I have lots of ideas, and generally in the shower for some reason. I've got no idea why that is. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I, I've every, I've, I don't think I've ever had a breaking idea, an idea that actually breaks the book anywhere but in the shower. I've certainly never had one in front of a screen, which is yes. which would be the ideal one <laughs> place to have one. <laughs> there's a, there's a, there was a good TED talk about it. It's because it's the only space you allow yourself not to come up with that idea. Yeah. It's, it's just, yes. you, you're, you're allowed to be thinking about anything and that's usually when your brain sort of yes. slips in and solves the puzzle. So it's, it's incredible. You're not alone. There's a lot of people on the toilet who've yeah. come up with... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just got in a really good shower. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So this um, is how to solve writer's block, take a shower. Yeah. <laughs> is this the and all, top tip? Yeah. So most authors just take a shower. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was, I was, I, I'd like to delve a little bit into sort of practically uh, your creative process. What ways, because you've obviously, both of you actually, you've learned a lot since your first bit. What things have you learned uh, that help you not get distracted, avoid blank page syndrome, those kind of things, because maybe you still have those massive struggles. I'm sure you do at certain stages, but what, what things help you overcome that and get focused? I, for, for me, I, I've, ne I've never had a blank, a blank page problem um, yet. I mean, touch wood. I, my problem is procrastination. My problem is not sitting down. My wife is wonderful at making me sit down. Um, and she always says that the moment my feet, my, my feet, my fingers, the moment my fingers touch the keyboard, it just flies. And she's right, it does. If I sit down, the moment I start writing, it flies. Uh, but I will make any excuse not to sit down. I will find every reason not to. We, we, we were once on a, a train in Spain. It was a six-hour train journey, and it took her two and a half hours to make me actually start writing. She, she'd taken the laptop out. She put it in front of me. She'd gone off to the, to the um, restaurant uh, carriage to get water and sweets and any excuse I could have not to do it. And I still found excuses for two and a half hours. And then I started writing. And so for three, in three and a half hours, I think I churned out about 15,000 words. And it's ridiculous how quickly I can do it once I'm actually sitting down. But it's far more ridiculous how hard it is to make me sit down. So I know. I mean, the biggest thing I've learned in relation to a process is... I need to get started and I, I need to start every day and not find something else to do. Uh, just, yeah, just sit down and get it done and, and get started. How do you stop yourself from finding something else to do? What's your process? I just make my wife do that. <laughs> just, that's, just, so yeah, that's, that's her job. She's, she's, I will, I mean, I, I'm, I even, in order to, when we move into our house, I turn the garage into a gym so that I'd stop going to the gym in the morning. Uh, and now I go and look at the gym in the garage and don't go in there, um, which, is, which, is, which is a real yeah. That, that's probably that's probably the best way to get me to write is to say right, go to the gym. <laughs> I would agree with, with, with all of that. I think YouTube is both the best and the worst thing ever. <laughs> and Twitter. Twitter. And Twitter. Twitter. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. 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 Talking of TED talks, I've watched a lot of TED talks, obviously. Yeah. So yeah. But there's a great TED talk that my um, that my friend uh, told me to write about this guy who's a lifelong procrastinator, and he talks about you know procrastination monkey you know you've, you've seen it. It, it's, it's astonishing because he says that things like giving a TED talk to him are the sort of thing he would like to be able to say he's done in the past but not actually having done it you know and he basically divides his life into you know week-long blocks and he has this huge chart that says if this is a 90 year old life 
divided into you know 52 weeks of the year yeah. just look at how many I've already used basically a lifelong procrastinator has just said it, it, it can't go on yeah. you know it can't go on but I I unplug the internet go somewhere where that's the only yeah. thing that you, that you can do because otherwise that's half a day gone like that on yeah. watching videos uh, not bringing your phone don't, I mean, just bring don't your bring your phone anywhere near it because I've, I don't think I've ever I don't know what Twitter looks like on a laptop or on a screen all I know is how it works on a phone same for Facebook same for everything so I, I just I, I'm not a big internet user on a computer so if I'm sitting in front of one then I will just get on with it unless my phone is sitting there in which case I'll be phoning people I'll be texting people I'll be tweeting yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's just it just has to stay downstairs yeah I think right I think all writers forget that your phone is perfectly capable of telling you when a message is yeah. arrived. <laughs> <laughs> there's no need yeah. for you to constantly exactly. check. It will beep or buzz or flash yeah. or do so. If it doesn't, yeah, there's no need just for you to check. Just in case the apocalypse Someone may have taken out the local cell tower. I'm going to have to check that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, if there's any consolation, they do say that actually there is a, a sort of, uh, I, I guess, a soft spot for procrastination. Actually, the most... Uh, inspiring creative figures we think are famous authors leaders they say actually they are all guilty of a certain level of procrastination so if you're too ordered you don't procrastinate often you're you're so zero in focus you kind of destroy your creative elements at times and actually procrastination can sometimes help your mind wander a bit but obviously there's an extreme to that as well where you actually never get around to do the thing you want to do but a certain element it's natural I don't think you're ever going to completely get rid of that. It's yeah. that's part of how your mind works. And my, and my unhealthy but encyclopedic knowledge of heavyweight boxing from 1960 onwards, you know, is <laughs> really evident. Like my friends will look. How do you know that? I'm serious. We're going to have to talk about this. Yeah, excellent. Good. I, I was a heavyweight boxer. This is that. That's very interesting. <laughs> I, want, I, want to, I want to ask you about that if, if it's all right, because um, people will allow you one successful career, mm. um, but they get. I think they get quite suspicious when you introduce a second group. It's like people, I don't know if you know anybody that has a hobby, right? It might be photography or something yeah. like that. They're then not allowed to have another hobby. Yeah. You can only be interested in one thing, right? So you've been a heavyweight boxer, you've been a barrister, and now you're a successful novelist, and this is going on. And this is all fantastic. I'd love to know, what was the reaction of people who wanted to put you in a box when you suddenly stepped out of that box into this brave new world of writing? It's interesting because um, the, the boxing thing was never going to be a career. The boxing thing was always, you know, I was, I was an amateur boxer. Uh, and then I had a few sort of less amateur bouts um, when I had a year off. I had a year between basketball and pupillage, uh, mainly because my university wasn't very good at telling you when to apply for things. So I thought, I, the, the way it works, you degree then bar school, then pupillage, and pupillage is your apprenticeship. Mm. And frankly, it's the only one of the three where you learn anything worth learning. Uh, they could get rid of the other two and just crack on with the pupillage. Um, but what, what I thought would happen with, with that normal progression would be that you would apply for, you know, you apply for bar school from university, and then at bar school you apply for pupillage. So I did that. Uh, and I turned up to bar school discovering everyone else had applied during university and they were all a year ahead of me. So I had a year with nothing else to do, which is why I did the more serious boxing um, for a year. And that's never been an issue of anybody because it was, it was amateur first of all and then a year off. And so the, the, natural, the progression there has never really, no one's really made a huge amount of it. Weirdly, since I um, started writing, they've made so much more of it. I think it's much, much more unusual to be a writer boxer than it is to be a barrister boxer. <laughs> I think that might, that, that's, it's much, Should have said that to the 21-year-old exactly. at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they've made lots of it since I've started doing this. Um, but to go from the bar to, uh, to, to being a writer, I'm not sure whether it was the change in focus. or I had to make a very big decision. Uh, in order to be able to write. When I decided that I wanted to actually do this properly and spend and have enough time, available time, to do it successfully, I had to make a huge decision. I was in a chambers called Two Bedford Row, which is not a million miles from here, actually. Uh, and Two Bedford Row is undisputedly the Man United, as was, of, of the bar. Mm. I guess the Man City now. But for my, for my, my generation. Whenever you're listening to this. Exactly. Exactly. Whenever you're listening to this, they are not the Tottenham of the bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I said it as a Tottenham fan before I annoy anybody. Um, so, yeah, so effectively, it was the Man United of the bar. It was the, the Barcelona of the bar. And I had to leave because it was so busy that when I, weren't, when I was not doing my own work, 
I had to cover other people's work. And if you weren't covering other people's work, well, then you weren't being a team player and you'd get less of your own. And it just, it just you had to be 100% there. And that means being, you know, at five o'clock at night, they might say, right, you have a week's trial starting tomorrow. And it could be in Dundee, or not Dundee, Scotland, but it could be in uh, Durham. And so you'd have to pick up the papers, get on the train, be where you needed to be, and you're there for a week and you have to be ready for this. And it's just that kind of a life you cannot write as well because you just can't have the time. And that's why it took me so long, really, to write Killer Intent the first time round because I was writing it in any spare moment that I had. So I left and I set up on my own. Um, I had a friend who was setting up a law firm. Well, I was encouraging him to set up a law firm, a solicitor friend. And so what we did is I helped him set up the law firm. I set up a a one-man chambers beside him so that I could basically have um, preferential instruction in his cases. And I would take the ones I wanted and then I'd have free time to write uh, otherwise. Now, everyone just saw that as leaving Man United to go and play keepy-uppy in the street was basically, and it basically was what it was. And yeah, they all thought I was completely insane. So I'm not sure whether it was that I wanted to be a writer that they thought I was insane. It was what I had to do to be a writer that they found totally and utterly crazy because it genuinely was like walking away from a top premiership club to just go and play Sunday league football. Um, But it was what I had to do uh, because by this point, I just had the compulsion to write and it was depressing me that I wasn't finding time to do it and genuinely depressing me. So in order to be able to do the thing that I absolutely wanted to do whilst still maintaining the ability to earn a living, um, that, that, that was the decision I had to make. And yeah, people acted as if it was completely insane. One of the things I think uh, I'm picking up is interesting, you know, having read the book, you, you can't help but feel like I know some of your story through reading the book with certain characters. There, there is some overlap. <laughs> yeah, and um, I think, you know, personally, I think this is true again of any uh, role you're in the film. We're very big and we very much promote just go and learn every aspect of the craft, even the ones you don't want, yeah. even, even the roles you don't necessarily want to be in. Yeah. Um, when it comes to your writing, because I know uh, certain scenes without giving anything away specific, it feels very much like the perspective of a man who's been in the ring and fought when you, when you, uh, when you read yeah. about certain fights. And that's obviously had such a, a positive impact on your writing. And the most obvious one would be, um, I guess, for, for Michael's character. And, yeah. um, being a you know a barrister yourself, it, it just it helped add legitimacy to what is a, a, a big story. Like yeah, yeah. I, again, without kind of giving away too much of it, so I, <laughs> I'm worried that you'll be, be better trained how you, how you explain <laughs> this out. But um, I I think it'd be a great thing to encourage more people to take what they've got and they'd be ashamed of that second job. And yeah. I, I think that's kind of what you were touching on a bit. Sometimes the other things we have to do to make ends meet become that kind of dirty thing you keep away in the closet, whereas actually it could be the thing that makes you... I, mean, I, I really think they generally are. I mean, you are a product of all your experiences. And if one of those experiences is a job that you've done to just to earn the money... I mean, I've, I've, worked, as, I've worked as a bouncer. Some of, some of the um, scenes that take place are less sort of boxing ring, more street-based sure. um, than, than, than they would otherwise be. And I think... Yeah, that's not the job I've ever wanted. I've never wanted to turn someone away from a bar or throw someone out of a bar or indeed get into the kind of confrontations that are inevitable in that job. But you do it for the money. And actually, I think, certainly for the, the kind of genre that I write, the experience of, of, of dealing with certain situations in that has been absolutely invaluable. And so I think any, any, anything you do, you know, they'll find a value for it. I think it's fantastic that you've ultimately taken all of your experience and pursued a passion. That's, uh, I think, a lot of people could learn a lot from doing that. And often people say following your passion is crazy. You know, you get turned away, or it doesn't pay, passion doesn't pay, all that stuff. (laughs) But, you know, and it often is the case at the beginning. Oh, absolutely. Pursuing that that pursuit of passion, I think. I think think there's nothing wrong with pursuing your passion as long as you have some sort of logical backstop whereby you're still paying your bills. And if you can... I mean, it goes back to what I did leaving the chambers and setting up my own thing. I didn't just set it up and start writing. I didn't do that straight away. I, I spent two years getting it set up yeah. properly mm-hmm. so that I would then, I mean, I was working ridiculous hours at first to make sure that it worked. I was doing less writing, but it was always driven by the fact that I knew once it works, I will be able to write. And I think that's, that's the key thing. Your passion is absolutely should be something you pursue, provided you provide for yourself as well. It's passion and provision, isn't it? And that feeling yeah. that you needed to do it, I like that description you had, that you felt like you just had to write, and so you, mm. you just did it. I think that's, 
You know, no, that's something that people should do more. You do it because you can't not do it. Yeah. yeah. David Mamet famously says he, he writes to, to quieten the voices in his head. Yeah. You know, it's almost... Which I completely get. I yeah, get that in time. cathartic. Yeah. You know, it really is. The, the passion thing's interesting, though, because people, people like to hear that and they like to live vicariously. They like to think, you're, you're off, you're doing your thing, it must be great. And one of the things I... I don't know whether you found this, Tony, but that I get asked is, you must be having the best time. And I'm like, and I'm like, I know that you don't want to hear me say it's really hard. I know you don't want to hear me say that because you're going to go, well, nobody made you quit your job. Nobody yeah. made you leave Man United to go and set up yeah. your own. You know, they, they, they want to hear it's, it's kind of going well. So I just smile politely and say it's, it's, it's going as well as I thought it would be. But actually the reality is, well, when I did that, people would return my phone calls within 10 seconds. Now, now it could be three weeks, you know. So it's that, it's the way I think that people see you you know, as an individual that's really, really telling. And it, and it is hard, you know, to, to try and, and write. I mean, it's not the amount that you write. It's not, you know, it's not anything to do with that. But to actually sit down and go, hang on, I've now decided that I'm going to pay the bills with words. Ooh, well, cash would be better. So, you know, <laughs> and I had cash and I gave all that up. And now, you know, and I know nobody wants to hear that. But actually, I think that that's what, passion is. Passion is saying, I'm deliberately choosing to not take all that money and not have all of that position of authority and whatever it is to live like that. I, I think that's brave to, to go, okay, there's some, you know, if I were a character in my own novel, there's some serious jeopardy. Yeah. Here, right? If I were a character of my own novel, I would write another character trying to tell him not to do it. Yeah, to do it. <laughs> yes. Well, I think, I mean, we, we've touched on this a bit, and I guess like, this kind of lands into the point why we're doing this whole bloody thing, to be honest, in, in, to a certain case. It's like this, it, it, it does become difficult to discuss your troubles within the creative fields mm. because people, again, they see it as a privilege, and you, you know, you made your bed, you decided you wanted to do it. Yeah. How dare you complain about it? And I think I know there's a huge guy. Um, upon a lot of creators you feel like they you literally probably the people I feel are suffering the worst once you shove their achievements in your face immediately upwards and I always I pity it to a certain extent I understand we can't be feeling sorry for ourselves too often you know too often or at least you that can't be an ongoing dialogue for yourself but it should be um, okay to voice your struggles in fact we've, we've already quoted various very famous writers who you know um, who speak of their, their struggles openly it, it is not often an easy job it's an incredibly rewarding job it, it is you're absolutely right you, you're digging into something deeper when you talked about the physical pain of god i just need to get that story yeah. out i think we can all agree around this table that happens <laughs> and yeah. you're not going i'm going to walk away from this cash because you know i want to it's just more of like i need to i need i need yeah. to find a way to make this work you mentioned showing uh, early drafts of it to your family i kind of always say to people you know if you want people to say nice things about it show it to your family yeah you know if you want to be really popular get a smartphone and a kitten or a puppy right, and yeah. film it and put it on YouTube because loads of people. But exactly. if, you want, if you want to write something and see somebody hold it and be moved by it, well, that's a different proposition. That's, that's actually going to cause you pain, yeah. right? either physical or some kind of emotional you know, pain. And you're going to have to go through that because if you can't go through that, there's no way you can make somebody on the receiving end of it Absolutely. go through it. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, if I have a tendency to kill off quite a lot of characters <laughs> in my books. And, um, and some of them are actually really quite emotional. Uh, for me, as I'm writing it, you get quite emotional that you are killing these people. And yeah, you can distract yourself by the fact you've got to get the dialogue right, or you've got to get the descriptions right. But I find once you've written it, is when you read it again, when it upsets you, despite the fact you know it's coming, when it upsets you, then you know you've got it right. I'm writing something at the moment where this, 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 this poor guy, I feel really sorry for him. Because it's just every day you sit down and you make, the world gets darker and yeah. harder and you're causing more pain. I'm like, why am I a nice person? Why am I, you know, why am I doing, why am I doing this? And when you get the feedback that actually what you're creating here is pain and suffering and you know empathy and all of that kind of stuff and you know your agent or somebody will go how do you feel so i feel really awful yeah. you know for him and you think well good because you should right and and i i find that's not easy that you know jk Rowling used to talk about this all the time and she, I mean, yeah. she would kill off a big harry potter character she would say often she 
go in a room and cry. Yeah. You know, because it meant that much to her. Yeah. Because well, you know them. You know, they, you know yeah. them as well as you know almost anyone. Yeah. I mean, the amount of people around Michael Devlin, who's the main Barrister character, who keep dying. I mean, if I knew him, I'd be gone. You'd run away. <laughs> so, I did that message you, didn't I? When, <laughs> I, when I finished the book, I just came out and I was going, I can't believe you've done that. <laughs> like, so it's, 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 I mean, it's interesting to hear that from a writer's perspective, because I know it's certainly, I know from, uh, from an acting perspective, you get really caught up in the stuff. It really sits with you. And I know you, you, the whole thing is you can be able to step in and step out. This is, I mean, you're, you're, going to be, you're going to be in the writer's room for... Um... Um, I'll be, I'm not entirely sure of my role. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I, I, I am, I'm heavily involved in the making of it. It's not just, I'm not, I'm not just handing it over. Uh, we're still establishing what, what my a- actual role will be. I wouldn't be the, the showrunner. We are, we're interviewing potential showrunners at the moment, um, or meeting with potential show, showrunners, uh, without saying, well, I, don't, I don't think I'm allowed to say who we have in mind, but I think we may have, we know who we like <laughs> of, of the people we've met. Um, I think my role would be a, a, a sort of a semi-producer role um, and almost working alongside the showrunners. It will be in the writer's room, uh, but also working alongside the guys from Liberty, um, which is Stuart Venegan will be the main, uh, the main producer, kind of working alongside him. I guess learning an element of, of that side of the business as well and sort of seeing where it takes us. But, um, but it, I will be intimately involved in the making of it. Uh, I will be very, very heavily involved in the writing. I wouldn't be writing a particular script myself uh, because it's not a movie; it's TV. A TV show is the is, what, yes, is yeah. the direction we're going. I wouldn't write any of the of the scripts for the first season. Uh, I might do for the second season, uh, but I would be basically overseeing them um, alongside the showrunners and making sure that it's all consistent with the world that's coming, because the idea is that each book would form its own season. So, um, and you've got um, a director attached with what? Uh Yes, Duncan, Duncan Jones uh, is attached to direct the pilot uh, and also, I believe, the finale. Oh, yeah. Yeah, usually setting the tone and yeah. also... Yeah. Uh, and he'll play a very heavy part in also showrunning as well, although he wouldn't be the hands-on showrunner. He's making Rogue Trooper as, as well alongside it. But, uh, but it will be you know, within the ethos of the way they run their companies and they make their films. He, he, I mean, Liberty Films is basically Duncan and Stewart and whoever it is that they bring in obviously they bring in everyone else to, to, to do the production but it's ultimately those guys and Stuart's taking the lead with the show at the moment as would always be the case with a, you know, an original production um, once we get to the stage that Duncan would come on board we won't make any decisions without him because you know, ultimately he's the director but um, it's, it's, been, it's been an interesting process so far I've read a lot of scripts recently have you, <laughs> I've read that have you had any um, tentative discussions about casting? Um, we've casting's difficult at the moment with this one because the people they've suggested so far, with a, with a couple of exceptions, are not who I would have. And <laughs> violently yeah, and, 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 I, and luckily because of my because of my sort of very intimate role in the whole thing, it doesn't. I'm not having a Lee Child moment where you know he didn't have much choice over who yes. was going to play Jack Reacher, and hence they cast somebody who was a foot and a half too small. Um, I still find bewildering. Um, we actually had a conversation about this. Uh, somebody said to me um, the argument of, they said, well, you know, because I, I basically, they suggested somebody for, um, for Michael Devlin. And ultimately, Michael Devlin looks like you. That's why you were cast. Because uh, the Joey Ball Book Club, were, were, you know, I gave them the specs and they cast you and, and that was you know, visually bang on. Uh, the people they came back with, some of the people they came back with, not so much um, in terms of actually, because obviously they're looking to cast a name or a, a semi-name. Um, and I can completely understand why you would need to do that. Uh, but it's got to be the right person. And there were one or two in the list they gave me that, like I said, yeah, okay. But when you looked at the others, it was all, it makes you wonder, and I'm sure this wasn't done, but it makes my cynical sort of criminal barrister brain think, so are you just showing me these guys so that the two or three okay guys in my mind become perfect? Because they're not perfect, they're still just okay. Uh, and, but are these other ones who are completely not Michael Devlin in any way, shape or form um, there for, for... It's just a really interesting process. And I, I know that's not the case. I know that's not what's happening. It's just that they're just throwing some names out there. Yeah. Um, and you know, I've got to take my cynicism out of the equation and just, just ro- move with the process. But it's... Um, but whilst this was going on, we had a conver- I had a conversation with somebody about the 
about Jack Reacher. And they said, well, look, you know, Jack Reacher still played, you know, Jack Reacher was played by Tom Cruise. Yeah. And he's nothing like him, and that did well. And I said to them, no, he didn't, actually. It earned 200 million pound. Jack Reacher has more readers than Harry Potter. It's a billion pound franchise. They lost every one of them by casting him. So they got Tom Cruise's usual income for a non-Mission Impossible film rather than the Jack Reacher income. Which is interesting as well, because they say the general rule is that you should make more money from the film than what's yep. made from the books. Exactly. So yeah, it's a very good point. They, 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 and because it was still a success, it's looked upon as being proof that actually the, plot, the, the casting doesn't matter. Casting's essential. Casting, it, for me, it proves that casting does matter. Because if they'd cast, if they'd cast Chris Hemsworth, who is basically the only famous person that can play Jack Reacher at the moment, too young, but he's the only one who's the right size. If they cast Chris Hemsworth, they would have earned a billion. Because everybody who reads Jack Reacher would have gone and, gone and watched it. And that's a billion box office. I was in a production meeting recently, and it was the first time that we discussed cast. And I've been left on my own with this script for ages, you know, since all the contracts were signed. And we've done the treatment, and this is the story we want to tell. So I've, I've been away for weeks on end with this script. And, and we got to the production meeting, and, and names were kind of brought up. And I, I was one of the most nervous moments of my entire life because I'm thinking any minute now you're going to say something and I'm going to have to rewrite that whole thing because I just don't yeah. I just don't see it and unfortunately I kind of thought and then I went home and thought oh am I am I sort of okay with it just like what you yeah. said am I kind of okay with it because it's not that bad or yeah. no actually that's sort of all right but I get comments from people who've read the novels oh character x in my mind would be great to be played by and sometimes I think oh that's actually pretty close and other times I, I think have you even read it? Yeah. You know, because that's nothing, exactly. nothing like that. It, that's exactly what I had. You know, and and I, 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 I totally get it's it's a process. Mm -hmm. And they're going through the process. And, and anything I say is not meant to be negative about anyone involved in the casting at all. It's just, it's their process, but I'm just not used to it. And of and course, you know, um, with all the books in the series, this could be something you're sat with for a long, long time. Absolutely, um, yeah. You know, bar recasting potentially down the line, but you never mm. plan for that. You, you Precisely, yeah. You, 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 want these, you want these guys. And luckily, Stuart and I are, are, are on all fours with it. You know, we know, we, we are, I, I know who my ideal uh, Joe Dempsey is. Don't know who my ideal Michael Devlin is, um, but that's something we'll come to in time. Um, and we, and, but we, we've got various ideas, and even a couple of ideas are slightly off the wall. Uh, and don't really match quite the book description, but they still are ideas that we've had for a reason. So, so we, we, yeah, we, it's it's a slow process, and we're a long way off. So, what's the the timeline then? We want to be in full production by this time next year. Okay. Uh, is, so we want to have the writers' room, the cast, everything ready to to, to basically begin production in earnest this time next year. Right. Um, so, just taking a, a, a wee step back before um, before we go forward again, um, re, um, again re, uh, going back to the book. It is incredibly filmic, um, you know. Going through it was actually it's very it's very easy to imagine how this will play out as a as a drama on the screen. W was that a goal of yours when you're going into writing it that you wanted this to go to screen one day, or are you thinking I'm, yeah. I'm happy this is a? I had a phrase earlier about you want to tell you want to make films in people's heads. Yeah, exactly, and that's what I've always wanted to do. I want people to. I've never. It was never my ambition for it to be made into a film, but it's inevitable that it suits to be a film if you write that way. Um, I mean, I, I love film every bit as much as I love um, writers, I love books, and the same kinds of films and the same kinds of books. And so it was always something in the back of my mind that could happen, and I'd be over the moon if it did happen. But it wasn't the driving force. The driving force was exactly, as I said earlier, is I want, I want to create a movie in their mind, and I want them to cast it in their mind. And I want everybody to look at this and think, oh, in my mind, that's Charlize Theron playing that part, or that's... Russell Crowe playing that part and both those things demonstrate how how my mind goes back to my the original book <laughs> that I was reading back then when the when, when Russell Crowe was in his prime and not Russell Crowe now <laughs> and, um, <laughs> sorry Russell you <laughs> could do great things doing de-aging now <laughs> well I mean to, 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 to pay him the ultimate compliment I mean in my mind when I write Joe Dempsey I'm writing Gladiator I'm writing Maximus Decimus Meridius in the modern day everything that I write for him is what would Maximus do I mean, that really is in my head when I write. I, I love the idea that he is basically that character, but in the 21st century. And so, uh, so uh, what, what, if I've said anything derogatory about Russell Crowe, hopefully that makes <laughs> up. <laughs> He's an avid listener, so you should, you should correct yourself. 
Maximus would typically kill He would. Exactly. She's basically Jay Dempsey. But he wouldn't enjoy it. And that's the key to Jay Dempsey. And just another little step back again. How did the how did the Liberty thing come about? How did you make that connection? Did they approach you? Did you approach them? I've known Stuart Fennigan for a long time. Um, Stuart Fennigan's brother is a solicitor. Hopefully not from the criminal barristers. <laughs> yes, but, but not in quite that way. He's, his brother's a criminal solicitor. Oh, okay. And uh, he introduced us. I'm, as I say, I'm, I'm a complete film geek, um, and as well as books, massive film geek. And you're in safe company here, yeah, don't you? <laughs> it, it, it's just every 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 element of it, and. Um, I met Stuart when they were making Moon. And so I, I got to know them when they were making Moon. I spent quite a lot of time in the office with them. They let me read lots of scripts. You know, they basically just um, fueled my geekery. And, uh, and we got very, very friendly then. I went to the premiere of Moon. And um, it, it, we, we, I've known Stuart very well since then. Duncan less so. I know Duncan, but less so because he lives in LA and that's where he generally is. But, um, but yeah, they're, 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 Stuart's a very good friend and it all came about from that. I, I gave him a copy of the book, and he loved it, and basically optioned it before it came out. So. Oh, really? Oh, wow. So it's been, you, you've known this yeah. since it even... Be, well. Absolutely. What, we didn't, what I didn't know was that Duncan would get involved. I mean, it was always the idea that Stuart would, would produce this for Liberty, and then Duncan, when it came out in paperback, I sent Duncan a paperback, and uh, he sort of ate it up and got in touch and said, I'd like to, I'd like to make it myself. Let's do it as a TV show. So that was an exciting yeah. phone call when you got that. It's, it was pretty exciting as far as that. Because, I mean, the difference of, of you know, Liberty want to make it as a show, I mean, that's great. They're a, they're a known brand. They're very, very good, they, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the moment you got Duncan Jones saying, actually, I'd like to direct that TV show, I mean, that really, that, that means you're now going to the networks with, or you know, the cable channels or whoever, with some real weight behind you. So, I mean, what does the future, uh, what do you see the future for yourself now, Tony? I mean, you, I'm, you are still um, a barrister. Are you, are you still hoping to carry on your work there, or do you think this is going to have to... I think if, if, if it goes the way I want it to go, the way I can foresee it going, uh, which is best-case scenario, uh, then I think my involvement in the law would reduce. Um, but my involvement in court, as, a way, as, a, as opposed to the other stuff with my, uh, with my you know, the, the business, the, the law firm that my friend runs... Then my involvement, my assistance there might continue to a lesser extent, you know, helping him, advising him. I think my time in court, if this goes the way I would like it to go, will reduce down to nil. Or could be very handy if you get sued by a former client. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> or even just a threatened yeah. when you're trying to get any in, in other words, I'll, I'll keep my indemnity insurance. I would, yes. <laughs> I mean, that, 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 that hopefully... That, the, writing one book a year whilst also playing a role in the, in the TV um, show would I think would I don't think that would leave me any time so yeah. and it would be ideal because at the time of legal aid cuts going into something a bit more profitable would be no idea it would be no bad thing there's also you, you fall into the um, a very nice trap to, to fall into but you fall into the George R. R. Martin approach of being so tied up you know overseeing being exec producer on Game of Thrones that you kind of don't get around to write to yeah. you know, the novel <laughs> and then the TV show overtakes the novels and yeah. stuff, you know and stuff like that this is your IP this is your story this is why you have to tell it yeah but you don't want to wake up one day and they're on series four and you, you're on book two. You exactly. I mean, and like George R. R. Martin, I know what happens in book four, in series four, <laughs> yeah. but I might not have written it yet. You might not have written it yet. <laughs> yeah. And I think my uh, publisher might have something to say about that. <laughs> he's got the, he's got the, uh, the, the first of the contracts. <laughs> one question we'd like to ask, and, and, and I'll be touching yeah. it, I'm sure, in other ways, but we always like to ask, what was the biggest um, risk for you? through this whole process, from where you are now, from the start of this bit, what was the, the biggest thing that could have put you off, but you're, you're glad you went through with it? I think the biggest risk goes back to leaving Chambers. I mean, that, that's the biggest risk I've ever taken in my entire life. Um, the reason I put it so highly when I use the, uh, the example of Man United is because it I mean, it's literally is the number one Chambers in the country. I was lucky to be there. Um, and it's the one place that was kind of insulated from all the legal aid cuts that are going on because of the kind of work they do. It was a lot of private stuff, a lot of regulatory stuff, the things that aren't hit by the massive legal aid cuts. And I took a huge risk of stepping into a world where they were going to hit me in order to give me the time to do this. And um, luckily it's paid off because at that point there was no deal. <laughs> there was no publishing deal. There was no, um, we need this many books a year. Uh, it was simply an urge to write. So that's, I mean, that's the biggest risk I've made in this process. It's the biggest risk I've ever taken. So um, it's got to be that. 
and and how did that how did that come to you? Was that was it, was it suddenly I'm going to do this one day? Or was it slow sort of? Talk? It was overnight. It was literally overnight. I had a conversation with my friend who was leaving his uh, he was leaving his law firm, to set, and he was determined to set up by himself. And I said, well, okay, I'll come and help you. And because I'm a barrister and a solicitor, I can't be a part of his law firm. Um, you have to be independent to that. But I said, I'll help set you up. And any work that comes to me, I'll send to you. And any work that, you, that comes to you, you send to me. And uh, it, goes, I mean, it goes way beyond that. The firm is now successful enough that they've got far more work than I can do myself. Uh, but they've got a consistent amount of work that they can provide me with a practice as and when I want to be available to have a practice. And then I don't have to go off and do the bits and pieces that would have to do with and Chambers. So it worked very well. <laughs> but, yeah, it was an enormous risk. It was uh, very, very, very nerve-wracking. Uh, but, no, it was overnight. It was, it, just, it was just the right thing to do. I think there's two aspects of it, isn't there? There's, first of all, you absolutely have to try. Yeah. Because to not try is to not be in any way authentic to, you know, the voices in your head. Yeah. To grow yeah, that but, but even even the bravery of trying is no guarantee that it, you know, that it, that it will work or will mm. continue, mm. you know, to work. That's the thing. Yeah. I mean, Killer Intent's been wonderfully successful for a debut. We've been extremely lucky to get Zoe Ball. Um, we... I don't know if we got it off the back of Zoe Ball, but we were the WH Smith Book of the Month. Mm. Um, and WH Smith, when ordinarily, WH Smith travel, when you finish your promotion, they'll just send whatever unsold books are back. And yet, this with us, they um, rolled us into the next promotion. And so, I mean, the Killer Intent has been a bestseller at WH Smith Travel, so every airport, every road station, mm. every railway, um, since, mm. since uh, July 6th. And it's still, I think, number 23. So it's doing incredibly well for a debut. We were also the Sainsbury's Book of the Month, the Sun, but we, we had a marketing splurge, and it just, it just went so well. Um, I am under no illusions that Mark for Death might get none of that. Uh, Mark for Death is the second that comes out in February. It may get none of that. And if it gets none of that, then we will very likely not have the same level of success with that. The advantage we have is obviously the TV show. Exactly. That will keep that, that keeps the interest ticking over, not just of the public but of the media. So we will hopefully still get some of the interest that we'd otherwise get. I mean, it, it really will. But if we don't get into production by this time next year, as we kind of want to, well then, then we see where we are at that point. So, so as you say, the fact that, it, that you take the risk doesn't mean it's going to work, and the fact that it has worked with this book doesn't mean it's going to work with the next one. Yeah, it doesn't mean it will follow over. Well, I was very worried about book three, actually, for exactly that reason, because it's a bit more high concept than the other two. Right. Uh, in, in, there's an element of the American presidency involved. Right. Um, and thank God for Donald Trump, because he... <laughs> oh, my goodness. We will get that in context. <laughs> I, I, I'm about to put it in context, because he's so completely insane and does so many completely off-the-wall terrible things that what I've got my American president doing is suddenly acceptable. <laughs> so I, 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 know I might now actually be able to sell this book. <laughs> That's our soundbite for this episode. Never did I think Donald Trump would benefit the arts in any way, shape or form. Well, I, you know, I know the news have certainly been grateful for him in a, to a certain point. Absolutely. But yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was very, very worried about that book. And <laughs> now I'm thinking... No one will ever believe this. Now I'm thinking... Don't worry about it. They will. I, I, better, I better ramp this madness up a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, exactly, yeah. I could go worse, actually. Yeah, Tony, we read your manuscript. We got some feedback on the character of the president. It just doesn't seem to be zany or wacky. <laughs> I think given... By the time book three comes out, your high concept will be the norm given our political landscape at the moment. Almost, so, almost I think I may have to just go back to scratch and just write book four and go back to three in a few years' time. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, listen, Tony, I, I, I don't know if you guys have anything left to say at, at this moment. But no, other than, you know, the very best of luck. Thank you very much, and, and to you guys too. Yeah, and hopefully this project... Success, it really is. And we, you know, art in dark times and all that, we should, we should celebrate. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Tony. Yeah, really, really appreciate that. Again, always, always welcome here. Do you have a popping by when I come into the club, come for a drink. Or wherever our makeshift studio is. We yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wherever exactly. we are, um, it would be a real pleasure to have you back. But. Amazing. Thanks so much.